0: Uh, really good music, really good singing, uh, really drawing our attention to the, the focus of tonight. And um, if, again, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to turn over to Matthew 27. This will be the main passage for tonight. Um, I'm going to read a, uh, a good-sized section of it, uh, but ultimately I'll be pretty much focusing on one verse. But I want to want to go through this just by way of reminder to us. Uh, it's uh, nothing we haven't heard before, but uh, if you're like me, you, you need reminders. You need to, to have this. Um, and, and God is, He's all about reminders. Many times in the scripture, He's told His people to tell their children, teach their children, remember me, remember what I've done. And that's what we're doing here tonight. Uh, so I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 27, and beginning in verse 11. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani? This is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Never have more sobering words been written. We love stories and movies with dire circumstances being met with Selfless sacrifice by one person for another. There's something about it that compels us. Something about it that draws us in, that inspires us, that makes us feel good about humanity. But never in human history has there been penned an account of selfless sacrifice and suffering and death that took a toll greater than what we just read. No other sacrifice has ever even been a drop in the bucket compared to this in terms of the high cost of this selfless act. And this was not done for entertainment. This was not done to inspire you to greatness. And let me be absolutely clear, this is not meant to make us feel good about humanity. Quite the opposite. We should be ashamed and disgusted by humanity in light of a holy God. And yes, that includes you and me. A couple of days ago, Alistair talked about the grim nature of this week. It was. I hope this is a hard message for us to hear. I've been praying that this message would be very difficult for us all. I mean that in the best way possible. But we must be brought to a place of remembrance and understanding without sugarcoating anything, without holding back the truth of the depravity of the sinfulness of man. You may say, people don't need to hear that they're sinners. Everyone knows that they're sinners. No, we don't. We think we're good. If you think people don't need to hear that they are sinners, then you've never read the Bible because God thinks we need to hear it. 66 books written over 1,600 years with never-ending commentary on the sinfulness of man says we need to hear it. Some of you may think this is harsh, and it is. And I do not say these things to be dramatic or brave or for the sake of being shocking, but it is because the wrath of God against sin is real. Church, if we don't truly understand the depths of the depravity, the lostness, and the helplessness of man in his sin that God communicates in His Word, we will never truly understand and appreciate the marvelous grace and mercy offered by our Heavenly Father through Christ. It's like this. You and I can be in an airplane 40,000 feet in the air and believe in the concept of a parachute and its ability to save, but if we, never, but we will never truly appreciate and understand our need for one until we fall from the plane. And let me tell you, man has fallen, and we should be scrambling for a parachute, but he thinks he can flap his arms enough to land safely. Years ago, I heard a sermon where Alistair Begg explained it this way. It is because God's wrath is real That his mercy is relevant. Unless you have a real wrath, a real anger, the biblical concepts of long-suffering, of mercy, and of grace are robbed of their meaning. It's so true. That is what I want us to see today. That God's just wrath abides on sinners... And that when we understand what that means, we can understand God's grace and God's mercy. For Christians, this should be a sad but wonderful reminder of the hope we have in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross at such great price. For those who have not trusted Christ as Savior, this should be a devastating and terrifying realization that you have fallen and need your sins forgiven and no matter how hard you flap your arms you have no way to accomplish it in yourself but by the grace of god through his word today he will open up your eyes and your heart to hear the truth god has made the way i read some passages of scripture that told us some of what jesus went through on his way to the cross I would encourage you to read all the accounts uh, in the four gospels of uh, this time period, this whole week, and especially this day, uh, as you can read and see how God inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write them down for us. And if you've been in any of my Bible studies, you know that I really like to look uh, deeply and in detail at the scriptures, and rightfully so, it can take a long time to get through a book of the Bible. So today, though I could take the time to work through all of the details of every aspect of what happened to Christ on that day, I don't think the internet could handle it. But I do want you to understand some of the horror and the pain of each individual torment that our Lord experienced at the hands of the Roman soldiers and the mocking crowds. You've heard that crucifixion was the worst The most dreaded, cruelest, most painful, the most shameful way to be killed at the hands of the Romans in the first century. If you were hung on a cross, you were the worst of the worst person. This was such a bad and shameful form of punishment. The Romans would rarely, if ever, use it on their own citizens. If you were on the cross and people didn't know the specifics as to why you were there, it would be assumed you were guilty of the worst crimes and fit for being reviled. Death could come as soon as six hours or as long as four days. As a person would suffer from the effects of beatings, floggings, broken bones, spikes through their flesh, and the inability to breathe because they were unable to keep enduring the pain of lifting themselves up enough to get air into their lungs. But death would surely come and sometimes would be sped up by the Roman soldiers who had to wait there until the person was dead. And usually they would break the large bones in the legs so that you could no longer lift yourself up. And sometimes they would thrust a spear or a sword into your heart. We know from Scripture they did not break Jesus' bones in fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus went through it to be sure. He experienced all of the shame and violence and pain of this method of capital punishment but I will tell you there is something worse than crucifixion. And Jesus went through that on that awful, terrible Friday. And we call it good. Please don't hear me minimizing Christ's physical suffering because I'm not. In Isaiah 52, 14, the prophet said said of our Lord on this day that as many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Do you get that? After his physical torture, the sinless Lamb of God was unrecognizable as a human being as he hung on the cross. And yes, we need to know it. We need to understand it, but there is something else we need to grasp more. Something so much worse that I don't think we can ever fully understand it. Something of which some aspects are and will remain a mystery that only God will know because we lack the capacity to understand it beyond what God has allowed us to in Scripture. Something the Scripture says took place at the ninth hour. 3 p.m. It is seen in a question Jesus asks while he hung dying on the cross. It is found in Matthew 27, verse 46, and also in Mark 15, verse 34. But I will direct your attention to Matthew's account in chapter 27, verse 46. Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says in Hebrew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it should be noted that in all of Jesus' life and ministry, this is the first and only time in Scripture that he refers to God as something other than his Father. Here we have Jesus crying out to him as God in the moment where he who knew no sin had become sin. Here the crushing burden of the God of wrath and justice comes down in all of its power and terrible weight on the Lamb of God because of sin, not his own. The scripture says Jesus cried out with a loud voice. The Greek word here is megas, and you can probably tell it's where we get our word mega. Even in this moment of physical exhaustion, our Lord still had the strength to pull air into his lungs and cry out these devastating words in a loud voice. And what is going on here? Is this question asked because Jesus didn't know the answer to it? Certainly not. Jesus knew why he was on the cross and why it had to be that way. He certainly knew the words of the prophets who foretold his suffering And we can see in other parts of Scripture that he knew. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 16, a few pages to the left. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. Here Jesus explains to his disciples that he must suffer and die. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus puts Peter in the place of Satan for his desire to stop him from going to the cross. Because it had to happen this way, he must suffer and die. And if that didn't clarify for you that Jesus knew everything that would happen... Look with me at one more passage of Scripture in John 18, verses 3 and 4. From the time of Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas. John eighteen three and 4. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom? do you seek you see here jesus desire to do the will of the father his willingness knowing they were there for him he steps forward saying whom do you seek you see jesus knew all that would happen to him that includes being forsaken of god yet jesus asks the question the Father has in some unfathomable, unfathomable way forsaken His own Son. The how of it is a mystery for sure, but we need to know that it really happened. God had forsaken God because of sin. This is not a play on words or a riddle for us to figure out. Jesus asks the why question because he's really experiencing it. In a sermon in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon explained it this way, It was no fancy or delirium of mind caused by his weakness of body, the heat of the fever, the depression of his spirit, or the near approach of death. He was clear of mind, even to the last. He bore up under the pain Loss of blood, scorn, thirst, and desolation, making no complaint of the cross, the nails, and the scoffing. We read not in the Gospels of any, anything more than the natural cry of weakness, I thirst. All of the tortures of his body he endured in silence. But when it came to being forsaken of God, then his great heart burst out into its lemma sabachthani. His one moan is concerning his God. It is not, why has Peter forsaken me? Why has Judas betrayed me? These were sharp griefs, but this is the sharpest, this stroke that has cut him to the quick. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was no phantom of the gloom. It was a real absence absence which he mourned. All that Jesus had known for eternity was complete and perfect fellowship with the Father. And now for a brief time that has been torn away from him. This loss of fellowship that has never been in eternity past and never will be again in eternity future has become a reality. God's eternal plan for redemption has culminated in this horrific moment that we call Good Friday. This is more than simply God cannot look on sin. He had indeed forsaken His own Son. This is worse than God not looking. This is abandonment and judgment on sin. Nothing like the second person of the Trinity had ever known. Now we're back to why. And I think there are two answers to this question that I want you to consider and understand when Jesus asks God, why has he forsaken him? The answer is, at the same time, because of you and for you. Because of you and me and for you and me. This was not happening because of anything Jesus had done. There were many false accusations brought against Jesus, but they accused him of, one thing they accused him of that was true was that he claimed to be the Son of God, making himself equal with God. They absolutely understood he claimed that. And this would only be sin for Jesus if it were not true. But it is true. He is God, the Son They just refuse to believe it. For sure, this is a terrible moment for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But don't think that the Father is up in heaven sheepishly standing by as these events just happen to Jesus. No, this is God's sovereign plan. Every aspect of it was ordained by God, planned by God, and orchestrated by God. The perfect, unblemished Sinless, righteous one is now in this moment doing the very thing that he came to do. That thing that has been necessary and prophesied about since the day Adam fell in his sin in the garden. The event that has been pictured in hundreds of thousands of bloody animal sacrifices at the hands of the Jewish priests. The thing that has been prophesied about for hundreds and hundreds of years. The sacrifice of all sacrifices. God intended all of it. From the manifestation of the Son in the flesh to His sinless life lived for us. From the kiss of betrayal by Judas to Peter denying Him three times. From the false and unjust trials before Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod to every ounce of saliva spat upon our Lord's face. Every blow from every fist, every thorn from the crown pressed down on His head, every slash of flogging on His back, every splinter from the cross He carried, every mocking word spewed out in hatred and despising, every spike driven through His flesh, pinning Him to the humiliation of the cross and yes to his abandonment as he was forsaken by the father and to his death all of it ultimately planned and orchestrated by god in order to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross in colossians 1:20 you say i don't know if i can believe god would do this to his own son but God says he did. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Why? Because of us and for us. Ask yourself the question, why did the Father forsake the Son? That question should, should rise slowly like a hot air balloon and then hang there in the sky seemingly going nowhere. And then look at your sin. It was because of your sin and because of my sin. You see, God says we're sinners, wretched and lost, with no hope of turning it around. The Scripture says we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are unrighteous in all our ways. There is none good, no not one. And the wages of our sin, according to God, is death. That is what we have earned by our wickedness. But God, through His righteous one, Jesus Christ, will make the many to be accounted righteous and He shall bear their iniquities. You see, you and I are the ones that deserve to be forsaken of God. You and I deserve to be crushed under His righteous wrath but Jesus Took our place. That is what happened when the Father forsook the Son. It was not only God's plan for Jesus to suffer physically in our place, but to be forsaken in our place because that is what we deserve. Let the word of God in Isaiah ring in your ears when you ask yourself why the Father forsook the Son. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. God says through the prophet, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid On him the iniquity of us all. Do you see this? Do you see that the answer to Jesus' question is because of us and for us? Christian, have you forgotten this wonderful truth? Have you been bogged down by ongoing sin in your life to the point of despairing? Please look again to the cross of Christ. Ask God to restore to you the joy of your salvation as you're reminded that Jesus was forsaken so that you will not be. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Do you hear that? You will not be forsaken. Brothers and sisters, when you are in Christ, the scripture says he will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Christian, these words are meant to be an anchor for your soul. Are they for you? Some of you have not trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, and perhaps you're struggling with what's been said tonight. This message, the gospel message, is the good news of Jesus Christ. What I've been saying is that the wrath of God rests on every sinner apart from Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross has secured salvation for those who will repent and put their trust in him alone. In light of what you think about yourself, you cannot imagine God would not accept you. You might think a sinner is the guy who murders people or the guy who rapes people. And they are. But so are liars. The Scripture says that all men are liars. It also says all liars will be in hell. Revelation 21, eight says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, my friend, the best thing that I can tell you today is that you are a sinner. The scripture is clear, and I appeal to your conscience to examine yourself. God knows every evil thing you've ever done, every lustful thought, which God says is adultery of the heart, all your pornography your idolatry, every so-called small lie, your hatred of other people, which God says is murder of the heart. You see, the Scripture is clear, and it makes it so that there is no excuse. There is no escape. Do you tend to think that the sinner is always someone else and not you? Do you think you're a good person? If you do, you're trusting in your own merit, in your own good works to save you, and they can't. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. What that's saying is that if doing good is your standard, you better do it perfectly all the time, your entire life. Never, ever failing. The problem is that nobody can except for Christ. The problem is nobody will be saved by being a good person or by supposedly keeping God's law. There are many who believe that and sadly teach it, but God says the opposite. If you are planning on standing before God and trusting in your own works to save you, you will only receive condemnation and you yourself will be forsaken of God. Even now, you may be going over a list in your mind to prove you're a good person. Maybe you go to church every week. Maybe you give money to the poor. Maybe you volunteer, etc., etc. And none of that matters for your salvation. All of us will die and stand before God to give an account for our lives. Your plan is to present to God your list of good deeds. You plan to compare yourself to other human beings that are worse than you, and say to God, See, I'm a pretty good person. You've deceived yourself into thinking that other human beings' badness is what your goodness will be measured by. The problem is we and other human beings are not the standard of measurement. God is the standard and the perfect, sinless life of Christ that was lived for you because you cannot do it. How will you justify yourself before a holy God? Sometimes the problem is people think that if we have sinned once but stopped sinning after that, that we're okay with God. No. If we have sinned once, we've become a lawbreaker, a transgressor. And the Bible says we've broken all of God's law by breaking one. We're done. We cannot undo it by doing good things. The fact that we broke the law does not go away. We cannot commit a crime and then stand before the judge and say, yeah, but I did good things. The fact is, you still broke the law, and a just judge must punish sin. The law of God is meant to show us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior, not that we're sinners who need to do better to be saved. Be free of that burden. Be free of striving to save yourself. Stop trusting in yourself to avoid being forsaken. Repent and trust in the one who was forsaken for you. What does it mean to repent? The word used for repenting in the Bible has the meaning of changing your mind, but it's really more than that. It is an agreement with God that you are indeed a sinner and that he is the Savior, and you turn to him alone for salvation. We see an example of this in the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. He was the most feared and uh, had the worst reputation for going after Christians. He stood and held coats for them while they stoned Stephen to death. He got papers to go to Damascus to imprison and and make sure that Christians were killed because of their faith in Christ. Everyone knew his reputation and feared him. Yet he thought he was doing good. He thought he was doing what God wanted. But then Christ met him on the road to Damascus. And in that confrontation between Christ and Paul, or Saul at the time, Saul had a change of mind. He came to the realization that everything he had believed before was false. A complete turnaround. This person changed so much because of uh, his faith in Christ now as Savior. Others had a hard time trusting him as a brother in Christ because of his former reputation. But this is what repentance looks like. Something that you thought you knew perfectly And you thought you were doing well, and then the truth comes to bear on that, and you change your mind because what God says is true. Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. He became a curse for us. Scripture says Jesus was our propitiation, meaning that he satisfied the wrath of God. He has brought about peace between God and sinners. You must repent and put your trust in Christ alone for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why is Good Friday good? Because the most horrible thing ever done because of you And the best thing ever was done for you. Why? Because the Father forsook Jesus in your place. Jesus bore your forsakenness. He took away your sin. If you will put your trust in Him. And in His own Son, He did not let up one bit. He did not hold back. He did not spare his own son, he gave it everything he had. All of his fierce and crushing wrath was poured out on Jesus because of you and because of me, but also for you and for me. The love and kindness of God in this is meant to lead you to repentance. There is no greater act of love than this, and it is offered for anyone who would believe. Please do not wait any longer to get right with God. In the Gospel of John, we see as Christ is on the cross another account of the end. In John 19, verses 28 through 30, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received their sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Christ did it. And Christians, you know that. Rest on that. It is, it is the rock of truth. And for those of you that don't know Christ, don't wait any longer. This is what we proclaim when we are going to do the Lord's Supper on Sunday. We proclaim Christ's death until he returns. And it's only equaled by the resurrection, which Brandon will preach about on Sunday we praise God for it. I want to, at the end here, have a song. We're going to play a song for you, and we'll put the words up on the screen. But I want you, if you, if you know this song, uh, while you're at home, sing it out. Sing it out loud. Um, if you don't know it, please read the words. Listen to the truth proclaimed in this song. It, it fits what we've talked about tonight. It wraps this all up. Uh, It's a beautiful song. I want you to to take some time to uh, reflect on the words of this song. And then I'll close us in prayer.